Welcome to Meet the Contenders, a podcast to introduce donors, activists, and volunteers to Democratic candidates running for offices all over the country and who will need our support to win. I'm Shauna Bray, and I'm here with Jamie Lynn Crofts. Today, we'll be talking to Elizabeth Guzman, a candidate for the Virginia House of Delegates in House District 31. To learn more about why the Virginia House of Delegates is so important to us, please check out our earlier episode, Meet the Virginia House of Delegates. We also recommend that you check out our earlier interviews with Joshua Cole, Lee Carter, Sheila Bynum-Coleman, all of who are also running for the Virginia House. Elizabeth, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. I know. Thank you for having me. So Elizabeth, one thing I noticed from your website is that you have a really interesting personal story. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to live in Virginia? Sure. Well, I am originally from Peru. I came to this country looking for better opportunities for my oldest daughter, Pamela, who is 25 now. I never imagined that educational and professional opportunities would become available to me. So I was able to achieve the American dream. However, you know, when I reflect and I think about it, it was not easy. You know, at the beginning, like many other immigrants, I juggled three jobs just to be able to afford a one-bedroom apartment. While I went to school, I've always worked full-time and raised my family. Uh, through today, I have two master's degrees, one in public administration from American University and a second one in social work from USC. And I'm currently working for the city of Alexandria government here in the Northern Virginia area. And I worked for a couple of local governments before here in the Northern Virginia area as well. You know, when I decided to run, I didn't know that if elected, I could be the first Hispanic female in the Virginia Assembly. Something that really, uh, I think, interested interested me more in this race. Because even though the Latinos represent 9% of the voting population, we only have one male right now in the Virginia Assembly. So that part uh, is one side that is interesting. The other one is about, uh, there is a person here locally who is the chair of the County Board of Supervisors. His name is Corey Stewart, and he just lost the nomination for the Republican Party here in Virginia for governor. And now he decided to run next year for the state senate race. So for many years, he has been persecuting people who look like me, or their last name is Latino, making us look like we are people who come to this country to harm this country or take over, and that we are criminals or gang members. He never used good terms when he refers to Latino people. So he actually lives in my district. So if if I'm elected, I not only will be the first Hispanic female, but it will also be his delegate, which is really, really interesting for me. Yeah, that is fascinating. Um, Was it your work in local government that made you want to get involved in politics? No, actually it was number one, the lack of representation. And second of all, you know, going back to this person, when I actually moved to to this county, to Prince William County, that's where I live, uh, I moved to the Occoquan district where he actually was the chair of that specific magisterial district. 
And back then in 2003, 2004, he already have this uh, policy about persecuting Latinos. And I actually moved of that magistrate district because my daughter came from school one day crying because she thought that uh, she thought that I would be deported because her classmates' parents who looked like us were facing deportation. So she was afraid that I would be deported as well. Uh, so, I mean, she we were documented at a time, and she understood that we were. However, we were moving from Fairfax County, which was incredibly diverse back then. So to come to a place where she's gonna, she started feeling different, I didn't like that, you know? And especially because after that day, as her mother, I can tell you that anything that would not go well in school, she will blame that to where she came from or her last name. And she will make comments uh, saying, oh, it's because of my last name. It's because I'm not from here. So I immediately moved out of that magisterial district to the only democratic district then, which is where I reside now, without knowing that this person will be then the chair of the county board of supervisors three years later. Oh, and no. then he will implement this uh, policy uh, called 287G, actually this law, with a partnership with law enforcement to persecute people just to deport immigrants. So uh, after that, I was pregnant, I was having my babies there. So it was not the right time. But I had that, I think that he really, for me, that was that was an event in my life that I never forget. And I said, at some point, you know, I'm going to do something about it. But it was not the right time. Mm -hmm. Then for the primaries, during the presidential primaries, I supported Bernie Sanders. And then, you know, I worked really hard to get him elected. And he didn't win the nomination. And then after that, I worked really hard to get Hillary Clinton elected. But there is one thing that he said, you know, that he said that if you want to create impact, you need to get involved in the party and you need to run for something. Because actually, where things take place are at the local level, at the state level, more than on the federal level. So then when he was saying that, those memories that I had about this individual came immediately back to my mind. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to stay silent, I'm going to enable his divisiveness. So I had to stand up and show him that Latinos come to this country to work hard. And we actually, you know, we just come looking for opportunities for our families and for ourselves. So that's what happened. Thank you for sharing your story. And, you know, I've lived in Northern Virginia for several years. I live in Maryland now. And um, a lot of what you speak to, I, I also recognize, you know, Virginia has so many wonderful people and communities, but it also um, struggles sometimes with acceptance of, of newcomers. Um, and and it's, it's, it can be really painful to experience. And I appreciate you sharing that and also being motivated to take that experience and bring it to, to, to the political sphere. Thank you. Yeah, it is, it is just... Uh... It is, if it's not now, especially under this current administration. So I had to do it now. I mean, tomorrow will be too late. A year or two years from now will be too late. So I wanted to talk about education. 
Um, sure. Virginia, of course, has top-rated public colleges and community colleges and universities, and arguably the best public high school in the country. But that doesn't mean that public education in Virginia is good for all public school students. Can you talk to us about the schools in your district and what you would do in the state legislature to improve access to quality education for students in your district? Well, you know, uh, there is so much to do in the school system in my district. Because what happened is that throughout these years, they have been going through a lot of budget cuts. And unfortunately, all those budget cuts cuts have been affecting, you know, teacher salaries, have been affecting special education classrooms. We have been reducing guidance, counseling services, psychologists, social workers in schools. And I think that that's a problem. And number one, because I didn't know this until I decided to, I had to navigate the system myself to learn about what does the public education offer, for example, for special education children. And my youngest son, Carlos, he um, has ADHD, and then later on he was diagnosed with dyslexia. So he was going, he went to a private uh, preschool because there's non-public preschools here. That's another issue, but let me go back to the special education. And, and can you also tell us the age of your children? Sure. Uh, my oldest is 25. My daughter, stepdaughter is 17. My son, Carlos, is nine. And my youngest daughter, Hannah, is eight years old. So you're definitely dealing with the school system now. Oh, yes. I know that in and out. I may not be a teacher, but I was at the other end as the user. So I know what we used to have and what we have lost throughout the years with all these budget cuts. So special education, as I was telling you earlier, you know, it's just unfortunately right now in my district, we only have one special education classroom for elementary school. So what happens is that your child, regardless of the age or regardless of the disability, will go to the same class. So my son who was coming with that diagnose that they all they, they do an IP for him, an individualized, individual specialized program for him. And they decided to put on the special assign my son to that special education classroom. And when I went and took a look at the classroom where they have children with cerebral palsy, with Down syndrome, with autism, and when you see the the difference in between them among the mental challenges, well my son what he needed help the most was reading. But other than that, he was normal. He was actually very smart. So it's like I could not allow that to happen. So I had to go to the school, you know, and advocate for my own son so he could stay in the classroom and ask for having additional support systems. And then I learned that even these special education teachers don't have any assistance. So how these children, I mean, just go to school, but actually their learning, their learning experience is terrible because they just, there's no way that they could teach children with different spectrums of disability. And even in Virginia, where the school system is better than some places, you're absolutely yes. right that parents really struggle. What is it the legislature can do then 
to improve well, these experiences? Well, what we could do is number one, you know, we could, I don't know if you heard about Medicaid expansion. So Medicaid expansion will bring to Virginia 12, about $12 million in federal taxes back to Virginia that we could not only use for healthcare, but we could use it as well for public education that have been hurt for so many years. Now, priorities matter as well. So when you see that legisla legislation that it's pro-guns, uh, it's being pushed all the time and money is never a problem, that's when you realize what the priorities should be, right? So we want to be a, play, a state where, yes, we have enough laws to promote, I mean, gun uh, buying options or having more owners, or you want to have a better school system where we actually should be investing our money because these children will be the future of our state. So it is just, uh, I think that we need to just prioritize better the use of our money. But uh, special education is just one, you know, there's another one also counseling services, for example, in the school system. In the school system as well, uh, telling you the ages of my children, that the oldest is 25 and the youngest is eight. Actually, my 17 year old is now going to the high school where my daughter graduated from. So it used, they used to have one counselor for 250 students back in 2010. Now the ratio for counselors is one counselor for 500 high schoolers. Not only that, we don't have psychologists or social workers anymore. So these guidance counselors have to do the job of three people. But what are the consequences of that? Number one, we're losing the opportunity to diagnose teenagers if they have any mental challenge or if they have any behavioral problem. But also, we are losing the opportunity to train parents. I mean, having a child with mental challenges, it's not easy. And parents themselves need help to become a support system for their children. So we don't have enough resources to provide that type of help to our families here in the 31st. Overcrowding, overcrowding class, classes also is another issue. When I moved from Fairfax, the average class size was 31 students per class. When I moved here, it was 21 students per classroom. Right now, we are at 34 or 32, I think, and it's the largest in the state. So while we are grateful for the amount of infrastructure that we have here and developments and all of that, but unfortunately, our schools have not grown at the same pace. We don't have, actually, we don't have any new schools, but one high school that was built this year but our elementary schools are overcrowded. We're having children going to, I mean, taking classes in trailers where, you know, they have not been innovated. So we need to invest more in infrastructure as well. And finally, I would like to reduce the amount of testing in schools. There's so much stress for the teachers. Teachers are not uh, teaching anymore. They are teaching to a test. And that's something that needs to change because 
I mean, in my, when I went to school, learning was fun. No, I didn't have to be measured how much I learned by taking a test. And I learned. <laughs> but right now, it's everything about tests, everything about... So teachers don't have time even to teach anymore. They have to be providing these scores and these numbers to the state so they can have enough funding for their schools. And it shouldn't be that way. And that's something that I would like to improve as well. And I could end with uh, increasing or having more early childhood education classrooms, but also early Head Start programs that are non-existent where I live and in the 31st district. We need to, I mean, the statistics show that children will learn better if they are exposed to the early childhood education experience from zero to three years old. And knowing that we don't have any type of programs in the 31st, that is something that concerns me, especially when our neighboring localities here in Northern Virginia do offer it in a, I mean, a larger scale. One thing that you mentioned that some of our listeners might not be familiar with, and a lot of people didn't realize at first, was that the health care reform bill that passed through the House, the AHCA, would have drastically cut Medicaid reimbursements to schools for special education and really hurt the special education system in our country. Um, and that leads us over also to health care. What solutions for affordable health care do you support? I, I think that the expansion of Medicaid should be the start. Not only because I believe that health care is a human right and not a privilege. And it's the right thing to do. And it makes also a fiscal sense. But I think that that should be only the beginning. I believe that the Virginia Assembly should work to block the repeal and replace of Obamacare. I'm not saying that it was the best system, but it was something in the absence of anything. But living in Virginia for so, I mean, in this country for the last 18 to 19 years, I've never seen any type of program available ever. So for me, that was. That was good. I mean, it has, you know, there is room for improvement. We could do better. It needs to be improved. But it should not be replaced yet. I think it should be changed. One of the loopholes that I've seen on that program, for example, is that employers, when they have employees full time, they must offer health insurance. But we were not prepared that these employers we will try to work the system and reduce the amount of hours for employees. So what they'll do is they'll re you work in 40 hours. Okay, we're gonna reduce your hours to 32 so we don't have to offer you health insurance. So definitely in a better version, we have to consider an option to provide an incentive to employers. So employers could find something, I don't know, in the form of tax credit, for example. So they could be, they could feel that there is an incentive for them to offer health insurance. Also, drug prices, it is outrageous that an uninsured person needs to pay more for drugs than a big corporation or a health insurance company. That is ridiculous. So, you know, I actually have, as a social worker, working in the human services field for so long, I had a client where, where here in Virginia, Medicaid is for children, for pregnant women, 
for people with disabilities, AIDS, or cancer. And if you are a pregnant mom, you have coverage as well until your child reaches that six months old. So with this specific lady, what happened is that she developed preeclampsy throughout her pregnancy and also her blood pressure. She suffered from high blood pressure and it's a condition that she had after she had the baby, she kept. So when she lost coverage and she realized that she had to buy this medicine herself and she goes to the pharmacy, each pill, she had to take one pill a day and each pill will cost her $100. And when she found out, she wanted to find out how much these insurance companies pay for, and she knew that they paid $25. So definitely, I mean, we're talking about a person who is under the federal poverty guidelines, who can barely make ends meet, and she will not have money to pay $100 for one pill, and she will die if she doesn't get this medicine. So there's definitely room for improvement. We need to definitely bring, uh, try to find competing you know, companies who can bring drug prices down. I mean, I think that, that this has been discussed at the Senate at the federal level. We could import medicine from Mexico and Canada and pay a third of what we're paying now. Finally, you know, I think that is, I will is that something that you would try to try to yes. address though at yes. the state legislature level? Yeah, because what, I think what, that we what should. What do you think you could? What do you think you can do at the at the state level then to reduce drug prices? Given that you can't change the the, the laws at the federal level that prohibit that importation. Yes, but I mean, when I once elected, I'm representing the voice of 50, 56,000 Virginians. So I definitely wanted to have these conversations with the con my Congress representatives in, in Washington, D.C., and tell them what the reality is in our state and try to earn their support as well. Okay, that, make, that does make sense. What, what about your legislative agenda for health care, given the fact that right now, of course, Congress is trying to make it impossible um, for Medicaid expansion to, to move forward? If they fully repeal the ACA, you know, if if there isn't an ACA or Medicaid expansion to fall back on, what can Virginia do, and what what kind of legislation would you support to get healthcare, affordable healthcare, to the people of your district? I would support a single payer system, but healthcare should be for everybody. I mean, and we, we talked should... to someone else who who Lee Carter also supports that, you know, a single payer system in Virginia. Um, you know, but what would that look like on the taxation side? Well, it when you explained, I mean, I had conversations with people, and people definitely believe that in they know that if you wanna have more, like if you're gonna have a better healthcare system, if you wanna to have a better school system, they are willing to invest. You know, but it's something that they don't have to. There's one less thing to worry about if you uh, support that. So I think that we can find a middle ground and people will support this, even if that means a tax increase. So you, you said middle ground, but to me, I think that single payer at the state level is definitely a hard pill to swallow. Are, mm -hmm. Is there a middle ground between statewide single payer in Virginia and you know our, our current reality? Uh, I think, well, Things are going to, now I'm hopeful that in November, you know, when the uh, 
the composition of the House of Delegates will change. Uh, there are so many things that we can find middle ground with. Right now, you know, we have only 34 delegates and we have to pretty much go by what the Republicans said because they are 66 members. And if we lose one more seat, they will have the super majority and we even lose the better power from the government. Right. So I am hopeful that we will not only gain more seats, but according for what is going on right now nationally, I believe that we have a very good chance to take on the majority of the House of Delegates, if not at least 10 more seats. So then the dynamics of the legislators are definitely going to change because we definitely have to be willing to work together to enhance the life of Virginians. People will be held more accountable. Right now, all of the, if you look at the legis, I mean, at the votes, the way the people votes, it's party lines, you know, for everything. Right. So it is just, we need to change that. And I think that right now, is we are having a great momentum. We just, as candidates, need to work hard to get our message out there. And then once elected, you know, we need to be held accountable as well. So we can keep gaining more seats. I've, I've seen projections that doing single payer in California would, would require doubling the state budget. And, you know, that money has to come from somewhere. You know, mm-hmm. what, what kind of tax plan do you think would truly pay for single payer in Virginia? What well, would it take? We can, I think that the big corporations are making a lot of money. So we have to start from the big ones and then put the regular people or the ordinary people at the end. So you would increase the corporate tax rate for Virginia-based companies? Yes, for big corporations. They're making a lot of money, so. So going from one extremely expensive budget item to the next, infrastructure. (laughs) Um, What kind of infrastructure projects do you think would be most helpful to the people of your district? Well, talking about infrastructure, I would like to talk to trans- about transportation in, in my district. Infra- we need, uh, what happens is that we don't have massive transportation where we live, you know? We don't have a station, for example, for the train, the VRE system that could come to our area. I mean, the closest one it's like about 25 minutes from where I live, but there is people, people who's living on the eastern side of that county that is not even existent, and even in Fokker County. So I would like to definitely, well, first, starting by investing in our local transportation system. Right now, we have a transportation system that has not been innovated since 1998. And we have the same amount of bus stops and the same amount of buses. So that needs to change. And it doesn't even run on Sundays. So we don't have people who could come to the busiest mall in Northern Virginia, which is the Potomac Mills Mall on Sundays. I, I mean, there's people also who lives outside of the county who would love to come and visit their family this, uh, on this side of the state. But just because we cannot offer you know, a good transportation system that could welcome uh, people to take the metro, for example, then we cannot do that. So we need to definitely invest. Then after that, after we enhance the transportation system, 
we definitely need to expand the metro to come to Prince William County and also to Fauquier County. And then after that, we also need to invest in extending the rails for the BRE system to Prince William County and Fauquier County as well. The reality is that due to the lack of high paying jobs in my district, many people like me, actually 60% of the population, commute outside of the district. So we rely right. on public transportation. And I'm on the road, actually, 20 miles each way to walk to work. How long does that take you? Well, right now, uh, TransUnion, it's made, uh, the company that built Ultra, uh, the build the easy passes is making a lot of money on me. Right. So because I have to take the easy pass and then I had to pay a lot of money. Right. So, but then that allows me to be home one hour earlier and sleep one more hour in the morning. So yeah, I'm know, like, like, okay, they get, they got me. They got me. Like I, like but, I said earlier, I, I, I lived in Virginia for a long time and I appreciate that traffic is one of the biggest problems and you know they built out the silver line uh -huh. um, but and I and I lived right by the silver line and frankly it didn't improve traffic in that part of Virginia so you know I'm wondering what kinds of transit solutions it's really going to take to to end this just absolute nightmare of Virginians spending so much time away from their families on the road uh -huh. um, to travel to to and around northern Virginia or into DC yeah because even I was on Saturday in Fauquier County talking to some of my supporters there. And for example, there is one intersection on Route 28. And then when you go to Route 28, there's a two-lane road without a traffic light. So there are so many fatalities that occur there because there's not even a speed limit. So, but then there's traffic in the mornings too. It's bumper to bumper. And there's no other way to get out of that county, but either taking 66 or 28. But we haven't invested, you know, in those roads. We are concerned about building and building more houses, developments, but not to invest in our roads. So we can have, you know, reliable roads. And exp I mean, it will just, it is, we don't have a good public transportation system that would actually help the environment and reduce pollution. But then at the same time, we're not even investing in our roads either. So it's like we have more, more, more people riding, but then there's more traffic and there's traffic now Saturday and Sundays too. So people don't want to even go anywhere outside of the county because they know that they will spend as much time in, on the roads as they do during weekdays. Right. So... One thing that you mentioned earlier uh, was the agreements that local law enforcement make with the Department of Homeland Security to basically illegally detain uh, people who they suspect of being undocumented immigrants. Mm -hmm. What do you think the state's role should be in immigration enforcement? There are so many things that the state needs to do, as we mentioned before. And I think that immigration policies as something that should be a concern of the federal government. Now, there are systems in place, so we don't need those laws, those laws that create fear and divide our society. You know, right now, any criminal, without any 287G, because that's what it's called, mm -hmm. any criminal, who, I mean, any undocumented 
individual who passes the threshold of, um, of crime and they go to jail, they face deportation. So we don't need any additional law. And I think where it needs to stay. There's other priorities at the state level that we need to be focusing on instead of persecuting people who just come here and they don't come here to look for better opportunities for their families. There's no need to 87G. We should be, um, be we should stay uh, as a state where we welcome everybody, where, you know, regardless of your immigration status, your cultural background, your sexual orientation, everybody should be welcomed. And that's something that should be a concern of the federal government and not the law enforcement. I want the law enforcement to be more focused on persecuting criminals that are to reduce, for example, rape, sexual assaults, uh, domestic violence, persecuting abusers, you know, uh, robbery, theft. That's what they need to be working on instead of trying to get involved in federal issues. You know, I wanted to talk about the intersection between income inequality, especially for women's and families, and healthcare. You know, in state legislatures all over the country, they've been increasing restrictions on birth control and even criminalizing abortion, along with lots of what we call trap laws um, to try to restrict abortion access. Can you talk to us about about access to birth control and abortion in Virginia? Sure. I mean, right now that goes back to these uh, party line votes in in the state legislature that they are more concerned about, you know, uh, who uses the bathroom. So for me, you know, I was a single parent when I was 18. I was a teenage mom when I was 18 years old. And I decided to have my child. But that was a personal decision. Nobody pushed me to form a family. And I believe that teenagers should have options. If they are ready, if they are not ready, if they are ready, and if they are not ready, because if they are not ready, we cannot make them form a family. So they should have access to birth control. And if they are not ready to bring a child to this world, they should also have access to terminate that pregnancy. Because the worst things that you want to have, the worst thing that could happen to a child is to come to this world unloved and not having the caring systems that they need. Because what happens next is that these children end up being in foster care or adoption. And it's, I, I mean, I see that happening. And it's, I don't think that children deserve that. Children deserve to come to this world being loved and not being unloved or then be uh, jumping from one household to the next one because moms are not ready to have them, to raise them. So your opponent has been the delegate for your district since 2002, but it looks like almost all of his elections have been pretty close. What are you doing to reach out to voters who may have voted Republican or stayed home on election day in the past? Well, uh, one problem that we have here is that Democrats will stay home during off-year elections. Because all of the, in elections, like Hillary Clinton won my district by seven points. 
Obama in 2008 and 2012 carried my district as well. Tim Kaine has won in my district. Um, who else? Uh, Ralph Northam, Terry McAuliffe, and Mark Kerry, four years ago, the three of them won my district as well. So there are more Democrats in the 31st district. The problem was that we were not engaging them enough so they could turn out and vote during election day. And that's one thing that I did. I decided to start campaigning early. So that will give me, because I was running against a 16 year incumbent. So I needed to have enough time to get my name out there and to have community presence. So even though we, we had, you know, during the last two elections, we lost in 2013 by 228 votes and then in 2015 by 1,300 votes. But then, as I tell you earlier, there were three other Democrats on the same ballot that won in the 31st district, but we didn't win the 31st in the House of Delegates race. So my job is to educate the voters that they should weigh, they should vote down the ballot. But also, I need to engage them. So they, they need to know me. They need to get to know about the issues that I care so they could get out and vote. We, um, my district has 19 precincts in Prince William County and five precincts in Fauquier County. And to be honest with you, this incumbent has been winning elections because he had a lot of support in those five precincts in Fauquier County. I'm not going to say that I'm going to win in Fauquier County. I am targeting to win at least 1% out of the five, but I had to minimize the loss. And in order to minimize the loss over there, I need to campaign as hard as in Prince William County than in Fauquier County. I had a primary, and when I went and knocked on doors in Fauquier County, when I was at the door with Fauquier Democrats, because they are Democrats in Fauquier County, and when you are at the door, they are like, oh my gosh, are you the candidate? <laughs> Nobody, you are the first candidate that came to my door. So I think that as campaigning hard in both counties, and because I'm not going to take away from my opponent that he knock on doors. He does. He's doing it now. So I had to work as hard to compete equally. So I'm, I've decided to knock on as many doors as he's going to knock, and I've decided to fundraise as much money as he fundraised. Because in the past, in the last two elections that I referred to before, he outraised the Democrats two to one. So right now we are closer. And I'm planning to fundraise as much money as he does because even though I have a better understanding of the issues, I think that my story is resonate with a lot of people in the 31st because I'm running for all hardworking families in Virginia. I'm gonna, I need to be realistic and I need to know that if I wanna compete equally, I need to have enough money. If he's on TV, I need to be on TV. He's on radio, I need to do radio. He's doing 15 pieces of mail, I need to have the money to do 15 pieces of mail. I need to have money when he goes negative on me to be able to respond so I can win this race. It's really great to hear that you're going to places that may be historically ignored by other candidates. Um, 
I actually grew up in a small town outside of the Chicago suburbs, and one of the reasons I really loved my state representative was that he was the only politician who actually came to my town to knock on doors. So just props on that. <laughs> yes, it works. It works. And even when you don't find people, you leave them like personalized notes. Like, I'm sorry I miss you, but I, could, I was here to invite you oh. to get out and vote. On these That's days. a very nice touch. Yeah, I'm so glad you do that. And, you know, I have to say, I meet a lot of candidates, you know, in my job and in this capacity. And any time that I don't vote for a candidate that I've met, oh, it makes me sick. It really does. It feels terrible. <laughs> I've done it before and I don't like it. So, you know, that, that contact, contact is really everything. Yep. So I even during the primary, I had actually, I remember two people that came back with my walk card and the sticky note that I left. And they were like, hey, I just want to let you know that I got your note. And that's why I'm voting for you. And I'm like, oh, that's oh great. gosh, thank you. <laughs> oh, I love that. So speaking of voter outreach, where can our listeners learn more about you and your campaign? Sure. Uh, they could visit my webpage. My webpage is www.elizabethguzmanforvirginia.com. And they could, you know, donations are always welcome. So if they don't live in Virginia, we would love to have their support. You know, we my campaign is a grassroots campaign based on small donations. So no amount is too small. And also if they want to volunteer, if they live in the metropolitan area, Maryland, Washington, D.C., uh, any part of Virginia, uh, we will welcome also volunteers to help us come and knock on doors to spread our progressive message of change. And I know that many of my neighbors up here in Maryland are doing exactly that for candidates down in Virginia, including yeah. me. Oh, yay. So, okay. So, please, what is your phone number? Uh-huh. Uh, not, on, not on recording. So, here okay. we go. Uh, so, thank you to our listeners. In fact, for listening to Meet the Contenders, I am Shauna Bray. I'd like to thank our contributors Amara Ledesma, Jamie Lynn, of course, who's here with us, Yelena Kovic, and Jennifer Winter. And please join us in the coming weeks. We're going to be uh, talking to even more candidates who are running for the Virginia House of Delegates. As Elizabeth just told you, there are very few de Democrats in that House right now. We got to get that thing flipped and to candidates all over the country. 